Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In 1865, French author Jules Verne published From the Earth to the Moon, a classic sci-fi story about a post-Civil War American gun club that attempts to launch three people to the moon inside a massive artillery shell, using an even bigger cannon called the Columbiad that they would build in Florida. In this book, Jules Verne even gives some rough calculating to figure out the distances and velocities needed to pull this off, and he's actually a lot more accurate than you'd think. The sequel to this book, Around the Moon, published in 1872, follows the three astronauts that were launched into space. This book makes me think of the failed Apollo 13 mission in many ways. Or, I suppose in chronological order, Apollo 13 reminds me of Jules Verne's Around the Moon. The astronauts in Around the Moon have to deal with poison gas, asteroids, orbital trajectories, limited rocket fuel, and the realization that they won't be able to land on the moon, and a potentially fatal fiery re-entry into Earth's atmosphere, before hopefully being rescued by the Navy many miles out to sea. All things that actually go on to be parts of manned spaceflight. Verne's novels would precede many other famous stories near the turn of the century, not least of all H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. But I baited you with Nazi space weapons, so what does a mid-19th century French science fiction author and the American Apollo missions have to do with Nazis in space? Jules Verne's sci-fi novels are widely credited as inspiration by many people at the forefront of early space science. One such man, Hermann Obert, born in 1894 in the former Austro-Hungarian Empire, would grow up to be a founding father of modern rocket and space science. Not even a teenager, Hermann was already building model rockets, and he would even arrive at the conclusion that a multi-stage rocket was the most practical way to explore space. As he got older, he started studying medicine, like his father. It was the more practical and serious discipline for people of his intelligence at the time. Then in 1914, World War I started, and 20-year-old Hermann Obert was drafted and shipped off to the Eastern Front. He was ultimately assigned to a hospital in his home country of present-day Romania. But that didn't stop him. He was still very much interested in space and thinking up rocket designs. Even pitching one design to Hermann von Stein, 
the then Prussian Minister of War. After the war, Hermann went back to school, but this time he focused heavily on his passion for rocketry and aeronautics, which at the time was not the high-profile discipline that it is today. His doctoral dissertation titled The Rocket to Interplanetary Space was rejected in 1923 for being too fanciful and utopian. But an amazing act of rebellion against the system and a display of confidence in himself, he chose to publish his dissertation publicly and refused to write another one to please the school. By the end of the 1920s, it had grown from less than 100 pages to over 400 pages and re-released as a book called Ways to Spaceflight. Around the same time, a group largely inspired by the works of Hermann, called the Spaceflight Society, had formed in Germany. This group was made up of people just like Hermann, amateurs and engineers obsessed with rocketry. They designed, built, and flew a variety of rockets. Hermann was a celebrity mentor to the enthusiastic minds in the club, and he inspired men like Eugene Sanger to switch from civil engineering to aeronautical engineering. And in 1929, Hermann would test-fire his own chemical rocket in a small lab with the help of his 18-year-old assistant, who would go on to be one of the most famous rocket men of all time, Werner von Braun. In the background of this exciting experimentation was the rise of what would become the Nazi Party in Germany, starting as early as 1918, almost immediately after the end of World War I. Many people in Germany were upset with the terms of the Treaty of Versailles and the overall pride of the German people had been severely wounded. Adolf Hitler, one of the earlier influencers of the Nazi party, would give his first speech in 1919 to a small audience of supporters. By 1920, the Nazi party officially started accepting only people of Aryan descent, and in 1921, Hitler was the head of the party. In 1923, the year Hermann Oberth's dissertation was rejected and published, Hitler led the Nazis in a failed coup in Munich. Hitler was arrested and imprisoned and wrote his now infamous book, Mein Kampf. Hitler was released in 1924, and by 1925, the Nazi party was back with a vengeance. By this time, the Nazi party included the names SA and SS to certain factions within it, and in 1927, staged the famous Nuremberg rally. Nazism was increasingly popular amongst the poor and middle class the groups most affected by the heinous inflation of the Weimar Republic. In 1919, 48 marks were worth one US dollar. 90 marks per dollar by 1921. And by the end of 1921, it was over 300 marks per dollar. And if that wasn't bad enough, by 1923, it took over 4.2 trillion marks to buy a single US dollar. And there was even a 50 trillion mark banknote in Germany. If you're a middle-class person, or someone living paycheck to paycheck, what does that do to your savings account, and what do you do about it? The onset of the Great Depression certainly didn't help. The Nazis blamed the Jews, the Bolsheviks, they blamed the far right and the far left of politics as well, allowing them, in theory, to have an appeal to almost anyone anywhere on the political spectrum. Hitler promised to undo the Treaty of Versailles and restore Germany to its former standing. The Nazis would continue to gain influence. In 1932, they became the second largest party in Germany, and in 1933, they would be the largest, and Hitler would win the chancellor's seat. Wasting no time, the Nazis would begin attacking and jailing thousands of suspected opponents. 
they began specifically targeting Jews and Jewish businesses. Albert Einstein was one person who was marked for arrest and assassination. His books were also burned. By summer 1933, Dachau would be opened. By the end of 1933, the Nazis were the only real functioning party in Germany. Between 1932 and 1934, two important figures in the story of Nazi space weapons would finish their studies. Eugene Sanger, similar to Hermann Obert, would submit a thesis on rocket engineering that would be dismissed. However, unlike Obert, he would submit a safer and more practical paper on aircraft wings and graduate, and then publish his original thesis on rocketry publicly. Werner von Braun would receive a degree in mechanical engineering in 1932, and a doctorate in physics in 1934. The last of the so-called elections in Germany came in 1938, and it offered only a single option, approval or disapproval of a single list of Nazi and pro-Nazi candidates, and the ballots were not confidential. By this point, Sanger, von Braun, and many other brilliant men like Werner Heisenberg had come to support the Nazis one way or another. That same year, 1938, the Nazis would annex Austria and also take the Sudetenland. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain would sign his infamous non-aggression pact with Hitler. Less than a year later in 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Great Britain and France would then declare war on Germany, and thus began the Second World War. War and politics changes things. Men who had once made a living studying space travel were now studying the possibility of weaponizing their ideas. Eugene Sanger would be contacted by the Reich Aviation Ministry and tasked with finding a way to bomb America, which would result in the Silbervogel, or Silverbird, rocket plane. Obert and von Braun would once again find themselves working together on the Aggregat rocket program, more commonly known as the V-2. These Nazi programs were among many other programs like the ME-262 jet fighter, ME-163 and 263 rocket planes, and an operational atomic research program that all served the Nazi war machine with the goal of complete victory. Given time and resources, maybe they would have changed the planet at the time, but nevertheless, they would still go on to change the world. The first space weapon I want to discuss was called the Sonnengewehr, or the sun gun. Have you ever burned ants or a dried up leaf with a magnifying glass? Well, that's exactly what this is, except it's massive. It's a 100 meter or more concave disc that would orbit the Earth, be operated by a small crew and built to focus sunlight on a spot and destroy it. A real life Death Star of sorts. Nothing was ever built like this as far as we know, but the idea was actually concepted by Hermann Obert in his writings in the late 1920s. Though far from an actual Death Star, Obert featured the large disc as part of a larger space station, perhaps as a way to thaw unwanted ice in shipping lanes or illuminate a dark area of interest. During the war, Nazi scientists and an artillery range in Hillersleben, which is about a two-hour drive from Berlin, calculated that at an orbit of over 5,000 miles above the Earth, a lens with an area of three and a half square miles could produce enough energy to have the desired effect. Captured Nazis would later claim they figured out it would have taken them about a hundred years to complete the device. Nothing quite like the sun gun was ever built, and even if you did, it would actually be next to impossible to focus the beam enough to generate enough heat to burn an entire city to ash. The sun gun is just one example of the wild ideas that the Nazis of the Third Reich were willing to entertain, which, while used for war, 
is quite the change from Hermann Obert having his papers rejected by academia. Far more practical than the Sonnengewehr, but no less menacing, was the Silbervogel, or Silverbird, pioneered by Eugene Sanger for the Nazis' America Bomber program. Before the war had really even begun, Hitler had his eyes set on North America. Because he was insane, or because he knew it was inevitable, or both. But America was simply too far for a loaded plane from Germany to strike. They considered launching more conventional designs from mid-Atlantic islands like the Azores, the Messerschmitt ME-264, the Focke-Wulf FW-300, and the six-engine TA-400, the Junkers JU-390, and the Heinkel HE-277 were all entered into the competition. Of these, only the ME-264 and the JU-390 would be built. All the ME-264s that were built were destroyed on the ground during Allied air raids, and it was eventually canceled in the hopes that Messerschmitt could produce more ME-262 jet fighters. There is also a story or rumor that one or both of the JU-390 planes successfully flew two test missions from Europe to New York City and from Europe to Cape Town, South Africa, but there is no evidence of this taking place. The Silverbird was entirely different. It's closer to something like the U.S. Air Force's X-15 of the 1960s, the Space Shuttle, or more recently, DARPA's Hypersoar in the ongoing Falcon project and maybe Virgin Galactic's Spaceship Two, which recently made the edge of space. Silverbird was a suborbital bomber, primarily developed by Eugene Sanger and his wife Irene Brett. A novel hybrid of a lifting body and a rocket that weighed 10 tons when empty, and it could carry up to 8,000 pounds of bombs. Silverbird was to be launched by a rocket engine off of a rail system. After being flung into the air, its own rockets would ignite, and send it to the edges of space at a max speed in excess of Mach 17. The idea was that as it fell back into the atmosphere, the plane body would produce lift, which would make it gain altitude again. This skipping motion would continue, with each subsequent skip lower in altitude than the next until it reached its landing point, which at this point in the early 1940s was to be somewhere between Japan or in Japanese territory in the Pacific. Berlin to New York City to Tokyo is a distance well over 17,000 miles, and if the Nazis' ideal plan of launching from the Azores Islands came to fruition, you were still looking at around 16,000 miles. Another thing to consider is the speed of the bomb itself. In an ideal situation, the speed of the bomb would have been more damaging than the explosive itself. But how do you aim and anticipate things like that at such high altitudes? There were no targeting computers and the Force only exists in a galaxy far, far away. Well, Sanger thought of that too. The pilots were going to use the stars to navigate and determine when to drop the payload. This was actually pitched as an advantage. Atmospheric bombers at the time could be thwarted by weather or heavy air defenses. No such obstacles existed for the Silverbird and its unoccluded view of the stars. From this altitude and speed, the Silverbird could strike anywhere on the planet in nearly a matter of minutes. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. By the time it all came together, it was too late. Nazi Germany was failing to keep pace with the raw manufacturing power of the United States and Britain, and the decision was made that the Silverbird was just too different and too risky to sink serious resources into. The Silverbird never made it past the mock-up stage, and a few small-scale tests of some basic rocket concepts. It was ultimately shelved, and Sanger was moved to another desperation project called the Emergency Fighter Program. Reeling from a war they were losing, The Nazis wanted something small that could be built quickly and get to a target area as quick as possible. Sanger worked on the Skoda Koba SK-14 fighter plane, which was really just a ramjet engine with a pilot laying on top. Yes, laying on top. The idea wasn't completely different from the Silverbird, at least from a really, really, really basic layman perspective. The plane would be launched from the ground by rocket boosters until the ramjet engine could get high enough to take over. Crazy speeds at an untouchable altitude. A variety of emergency fighters were prototyped, but the SK-14 was never fully built either. Silverbird was way ahead of its time and is still an inspired design. Perhaps the only significant flaw on paper was that they didn't actually have the materials that they would have needed to allow the space plane to survive the heat generated by such high speeds and re-entry, let alone a potentially repeated re-entry. When the U.S. Air Force flew the X-15 in the 1960s, the special kinds of alloys that could resist these kinds of heat had only just come into existence. Manufacturing and working with them was still far from perfect. Another example of an engineering problem that helps me visualize the kinds of strange problems Silverbird might have encountered was the SR-71 Blackbird, which would publicly reach a speed of over Mach 3, was a very leaky aircraft on the ground, and it had to be refueled shortly after takeoff. The leaks were sort of part of the design. As the aircraft heated up from the friction in the air, the materials would expand and seal it off. Sanger wasn't completely ignorant of these issues with the Silverbird, though. He made the same sort of arguments that all space programs make, that reusability would lead to a decrease in cost, and that the economic benefits from the development of new technologies and manufacturing processes would help outweigh the downsides. If this all still seems too fantastical, you can actually read and see for yourself one of the main reports produced by Eugene Sanger about the Silverbird. 
It's complete with drawings and a lot of the engineering justification behind certain decisions. In English, the report is called A Rocket Drive for Long-Range Bombers. I'll post a link for that on my Instagram page, at Waiting In Podcast, and on my Twitter, at Waiting In One. I also have a Facebook page started where I'll post links like this and other material that I find interesting. While Sanger worked on his America Bomber and later the Emergency Fighter, Werner von Braun had teamed back up with his old mentor Hermann Obert on the Aggregat rocket program, more commonly known as the V-2. The V-2 was part of a broader program called the, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it translates to Vengeance Weapons, hence the V designation. This program actually got started in the late 1930s, notably with the V-1, called the Flying Bomb. It was widely used by the Nazis against Great Britain. Launched from France, they were self-guided by gyroscopes across the English Channel to their target destination. The V-1 was not all that accurate, and it could be shot down by the British RAF Hurricanes and Spitfires. But as a psychological weapon, the V-1 was a giant. The world hadn't really seen this sort of large, autonomous explosive. The V-2 was significantly different from the V-1, though. For starters, it was a lot bigger and a lot faster. And as early as 1942, V-2 rockets had reached altitudes that we today consider space, which makes Nazi Germany the first country to put something into space. But it took a while for the program to get to the point of being viable. One of the main problems was the inability to get the materials and components needed for the rocket. Not to forget needing to produce a rocket engine that could be reliable and powerful enough to carry the payload and a guidance system to get it to the right spot. The V-2 underwent several revisions with varying degrees of success and failure. But at the time, Hitler just considered it a more expensive and a less reliable form of artillery, which is fitting seeing as how this all began with Jules Verne in a massive cannon blasting humans to the moon. But as the war went on and the Nazis got desperate, the V-2 would come back up. Hitler needed the really expensive artillery to prove a point, especially since the V-1 rocket, which at the time the Nazis hailed as the single superweapon that would force Britain to capitulate, failed to do so. Naturally, the engineers on the program, including von Braun, were enthusiastic about the program and promised that it was ready. Seemingly out of options and in desperate need of a miracle weapon, the V-2 became a priority and entered full-scale production. The V-2 potentially used less raw materials than many aircraft, and it could be transported via truck and launched from virtually anywhere. It also didn't need a pilot, another thing the Germans were running out of. The V-2 was a potential game-changer. At the height of its production, the V-2 program consumed as much of a third of Germany's available fuel production. Another advance in the V-2 was that some later versions were guided by radio signals from the ground rather than the gyro of the V-1. This sort of control, and the V-2's more recognizable rocket flight profile, made them virtually impossible to defend against, and potentially a lot more accurate. There were even plans to begin launching V-2s from submarines. The V-2 had a maximum blast radius just under 70 feet and could make a crater 25 feet in the ground. The first attack on London came in September 1944, and they would be nearly non-stop after that. In 1944 alone, over 3,000 V-2s were launched at Allied targets, mostly in Britain. Even though the V-2 was accurate for its time, it was still a ways away from the precision we've come to take for granted, thanks to modern rockets like the SpaceX Falcon series, in a few cases missing by up to 40 miles, 
which can be the difference between a city and the countryside. The V2 also lacked a proximity fuse, which meant the explosive didn't go off until after impact, which actually reduced the amount of surface-level damage it could cause. The British were also able to exploit the new rocket program to some degree. They would intentionally broadcast that the rockets were overshooting or undershooting their targets, and the Nazis would occasionally adjust and then miss for real. Around 9,000 people, though, with about 7,000 of them being in London, would be killed by the V-2 rockets in the final stages of the war. This number excludes an additional 10 to 12,000 slaves thought to have died from poor conditions during the manufacture of the missile. In all, over 5,000 V-2s were built, largely by slave labor. In the last two years of the war, and if you include the V-1, the Nazis surprisingly spent more than twice the amount on the V-series of rockets than what the Americans spent developing and deploying the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project. Imagine what might have happened if the Nazis had gotten that in 1944. 1945 brought the end of World War II and the dissolution of the Nazi machine. It would, however, be far from the end of the German influence in rocketry and spaceflight. Operation Paperclip, which is worthy of its own lengthy discussion, was an Allied plan to recruit or capture as many Nazi scientists from cutting-edge programs like the V-2 as possible and put them back to work. With a keen eye on the Soviet Union and keeping materials and scientists out of the hands of Joseph Stalin. The Americans would capture as many V-2s and V-2 components as they could, filling as many trains and boats as possible and returning them to the United States, along with scientists like von Braun, for further research and testing. Operation Paperclip was controversial in America. After all, these men were Nazis, and in the case of von Braun, were outright running programs that enslaved, killed, and terrified countless people. The shadow of this legacy would follow von Braun through his later career in the U.S. When we think about von Braun today, we tend to forget his early image problems. There were even claims that von Braun had stolen certain designs on the V-2 from the American father of rocketry, Robert Goddard. But barely after the war, the U.S. was launching V-2 rockets of its own, with von Braun never missing a beat. In October 1946, at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, a V-2 rocket with a specially made camera would reach an altitude of 65 miles and take the first picture of the Earth from space, a surprising fact that is quite frequently overlooked today. The boundary between space and Earth is considered to be 62 miles in altitude. The potential that rocketry represented was undeniable. The V-2 ultimately led to Project Redstone in America, which was really just a new iteration of the V-2, and it was our first nuclear missile in the United States. But the Soviet Union would grab their fair share of V-2 scientists as well, and go on to produce improved versions of the V-2 in a short time, even exceeding the U.S. for a while in missile technology, and be the first country to put a satellite in orbit, though Sputnik in 1957 and then a person, Yuri Gagarin, in 1961. The USSR had quickly become an arch-rival, led by brilliant men like Sergei Koryalov and their own captured V-2 scientists like Helmut Grutrup. Suddenly, less than a decade after the Holocaust and the bloodiest war in human history, the work of former Nazi scientists like von Braun suddenly became an issue of American pride. Von Braun would continue his pioneering rocket work for the remainder of his life, peaking with the Saturn V rocket that ultimately put Apollo astronauts on the moon. Von Braun would even pitch the idea 
of a rotating space station that orbits the Earth, an idea still talked about in one form or another to this day. And he wrote a book called Das Mars Project that details his ideas for manned Mars exploration, along with a few more powerful rocket designs that were never built. Hermann Obert also ended up in the United States, eventually working for his former pupil, Werner von Braun, at NASA. Later, he would go on to have a hand in the development of the Atlas series of rockets. Variants of the Atlas rocket are still in production to this day, manufactured by United Launch Alliance and used for commercial and military missions. As of the release of this podcast, in February 2019, there is an Atlas V mission scheduled for April 2019 that will carry Boeing Company's Starliner on its first test, paving the way for a return of manned American space flights along with the SpaceX Dragon capsule. Currently, only the Russians and the Soyuz capsule can make it to space with people on board. Eugene Sanger would end up in France and continue working on his own designs and contributing to science, until he returned to Germany in the 1960s. Some of Sanger's later work included a novel idea for a photon-powered rocket in the 1950s that would use matter and antimatter explosions to emit gamma rays. The gamma rays were theoretically usable as thrust, but there was no real ability to channel the energy through an exhaust nozzle, since the rays are emitted randomly, and as far as we can tell, not able to be aimed with any kind of meaningful precision. The next big problem is dissipating the heat from the explosion, which at the time was thought to have been around 10,000 degrees Kelvin, or 17,540 degrees Fahrenheit, which is on par with the ambient temperature of a small nuclear blast radius. But modern science still doesn't wholly dismiss this idea. Eugene Sanger was quite possibly ahead of his time again. Oddly enough, while Werner and Eugene both knew Hermann Obert, they only met each other twice, and they were considered rivals. Although Sanger joined the Nazi party first, von Braun was the first to be employed by the Nazis in a science capacity, and when Eugene was brought on board, von Braun thought that might make him less important. They remained rivals after the war until Sanger died of a heart attack in 1964. In a way, I think some of the spirit of that rivalry still exists. In the 1960s, it was the X-15, or a new rocket program. Then in the 70s and 80s, it was the Saturn V versus the Space Shuttle. And today, maybe Virgin Galactic versus Blue Origin. The Nazi superweapons of World War II are one of the most intriguing and terrifying aspects of the Second World War. If a handful of things fell in the favor of Germany, could things have ended up differently? And beyond the war, I'll always wonder how different today might be if America had kept going to the moon, and if some of the more massive concept rockets, like the Saturn-based Nova rocket, had actually been built. And let's not forget the Silverbird, that is still one of the most futuristic but useful concepts still under consideration that could shrink the world more than any existing aircraft, and perhaps even open up space to people who can't afford a $50 million Soyuz ticket, or the yet unknown cost of hitching a ride on Elon Musk's Falcon Heavy. Virgin Galactic plans to get you to space for a few minutes for a mere $250,000 on board Spaceship Two. And on the same note, a company called Stratolaunch, started by late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, plans to use a massive airplane, one of, if not the biggest ever built, to carry a rocket-powered space shuttle called Black Ice to high altitude and then let it launch into space. The Black Ice ship is nearly as large as the old space shuttle, 
and would be able to make it to orbit with the payload and dock with the ISS. I can see a little bit of the Silverbird in both of those. Today, we have our Jules Verne stories, which to me are the ones like Andy Weir's The Martian or his book Artemis. And heck, why not Star Trek? But one thing is for sure, the future of spaceflight can only get better, and we have nowhere to go but up. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. See you next time. Music in this episode, in order of occurrence, The Descent, Shadowlands 7 Codex, Drums of the Deep, String Impromptu Number 1, by Kevin McLeod. If you like lore and legends, consider supporting the show at buymeacoffee.com slash loreandlegends with a one-time gift that will cost less than a cup of coffee. You can also follow on Instagram, where my handle is at loreandlegends1, and on Twitter, at loreandlegends3. You can also subscribe to the Lore and Legends YouTube channel, which features video versions of all your favorite episodes. And of course, the official website, loreandlegends.net. Thanks for checking out Lauren Legends. See you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.